Good morning. Happy Advent. Today, we are reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, book of Matthew, chapter 1. By the time you're there, I will have finished, so <laughs> here it comes. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, welcome to the first Sunday of Advent. As Matt was saying, the word Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which means arrival. So during this season, we are doing our best to stir up the longing for the arrival of Christ, not only in solidarity with our brothers and sisters of the past who are waiting for the first arrival of Christ, but we are actually ourselves awaiting the second arrival of Christ, and that is what this season is for. So my job this Advent, or at least this Sunday, is to focus our preaching time on the promises of God that have been fulfilled with the advent of Christ into this world. And my job is to help you see how Jesus Christ fulfilled God's promise to Abraham. And we're going to have to do some work on our text for us because when we start reading a genealogy, when we hear that, we're like, okay, just let's get on with the story. Let's skip this part. But... For the people walking in deepest darkness, these words, Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, was a shaft of light that pierced into their darkness and gave them hope of something to come. Now, my whole message for this sermon is as follows. The coming of Christ answers the problem of righteousness by convincing us that the Lord provides. The coming of Christ answers the problem of righteousness by convincing us that the Lord provides. So in order to help us understand that, we're going to talk about it under two headings. Number one, we're going to talk about the problem of righteousness. And then number two, we're going to talk about the solution of righteousness. Are you ready? Let's do it. The problem of righteousness, number one. So the first thing we need to establish is that the whole story of Abraham, that's what we're going to be considering this morning, the whole story of Abraham is basically a story about how one man becomes righteous in the sight of God. Now, you might be tempted to believe that righteousness has nothing to do with you. Uh, you might think that the problem of righteousness has no bearing on your life, or maybe it does, but you've got so many other problems that are screaming so much louder than that that you really don't have time or energy to devote to it. That one doesn't seem all that important. But I would like to try to convince you today that the problem of righteousness is actually the most central problem of our lives. The problem of righteousness is the soil out of which all your other problems grow. The hunger for righteousness is a universal human longing. It's not just religious people. Universal human longing. It's what gets us up in the morning. It's what keeps us toiling late at night. It's what makes us enter into the relationships that we have. It's what makes us make the decisions that we make. It, 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 it's the central operating principle of our lives. And do you know why? You may be, maybe you're arguing with me right now. No, it's not. I think about a lot of other things. That's not the thing that motivates me. But let me try to help you understand. At its most basic... Righteousness just means approval. 
acceptance. And that is a universal human longing. We all want approval. We all want to be accepted. Of course. Now, as a high school teacher myself, I have a front row seat uh, to this longing for acceptance, especially uh, around this time of year, a little bit earlier, when kids are starting to apply to colleges. And what's this, I mean, this is astonishing to me. These kids are applying so much earlier than I ever did. They're, they're thinking about it like in, I've got freshmen and sophomores that are like, well, I got to get this number of AP classes and I got to figure out this volunteer opportunity so that my resume looks good so I can get into that. I can't understand it. And being their teacher, I have a front row seat to when they actually start applying for college. And so they send off their letter and they wait and they wait. And what are they waiting for? Approval. Right? Will I be accepted in the sight of that board of admissions? And as you know, that letter can come back with one of two possible answers. Number one is this. You made it. Approved. Accepted. You are righteous in our sight. To put it in our language. And to hear that, it's about, I mean... It's about the best thing that's ever happened to these kids in their lives up to this point. But the other answer is also possible. Not accepted. And to hear that, it's like all the color drains out of their lives for a whole season. It's like this is, this, this is what they were banking on. This is all their hopes. And, and yet all these other schools accepted you, but not that one. They said no, not accepted. The people who could tell them whether they were acceptable or not said, no, you are not. Now, I know not all of us are high schoolers in this room. In fact, there are some, but there, most of us are not high schoolers in this room. But I imagine that you feel the emotion that these high schoolers feel as they are applying to these schools. Why? Because all of our lives, from beginning to end, are a long grappling for approval. Or, to put it another way, a long grappling for righteousness. To be told that we are accepted, that we are enough, that we pass the scrutiny of another and have been approved in their sight. I would argue that there is nothing more central to the human heart than that. And so, that's the problem of righteousness. So how do we go about solving this problem? Uh, one option, let me give you two options that don't work, and then we'll talk about the third option, which does. The first option, this one's growing popular these days, is to make a decision to cast off all outside opinions of ourselves, right? I don't care what anyone else thinks about me. I'm beautiful. I'm competent. I'm respectable. And I understand. I understand that impulse. And there could be some good in that. But the problem with it is this. The reason why I have to constantly fight with myself to tell myself that I'm okay and to tell, tell myself that their opinion doesn't matter to me, the reason why I have to keep doing that is because I desperately want their opinion of me. Like, it, that's why. So th there must be something to that longing. I deeply care what everyone else thinks. So... So that's one solution is to say, no, I don't, but we truly do. And that's one way to solve our righteousness problem, but it's not a solution. It doesn't matter how much you tell yourself 
my opinion about me is the only one that matters. You will find yourself longing, if you're a human, to be told by someone outside of yourself that you are accepted, that you are beautiful, that you are competent, that they are well pleased with you. So that's potential solution number one. Potential solution number two to the problem of righteousness is to begin building your resume. If you just pack it full of approval-provoking entries, then this world will tell me that I'm accepted. And that's, to a degree, probably true. But there's a problem with this, too. I was uh, recently reading this interview with the pop singer Sia. <laughs> what? <laughs> now, if you don't know who she is, and I confess, I, I mean, I know almost nothing. But she, she's a singer. <laughs> Look, I'm hip, all right? I, <laughs> I spend my life with high schoolers. I, I know, don't worry. Um, anyway, if you, if you don't know who she is, um, she, uh, all you really need to know is that she has really made it. She's got a score of number one hits. Uh, she's written songs for some of the top recording artists in the business. She has, as you can imagine, been compensated well for her efforts. Um, so she's got it all. She's got fame, fortune, a career that she loves, arenas filled with screaming fans who adore her, and the power to order her life exactly as she wishes it to be ordered. Obviously, she lacks nothing, except that she does. <laughs> In the interview, I was struck by this particular admission. She said, everybody in the entertainment in industry is insecure. We have been tap dancing our entire lives for your approval. What do you mean you're tap dancing for our approval? You've got it. We buy your records. We go to your shows. We scream. We watch your videos in the millions. What do you mean you're tap dancing for, for our approval? You have it. Unless there is a longing for approval that no amount of money and power and adoring fans could fill. And I happen to think <laughs> that that's indeed the case. Now, how in the world could it be that a resume like hers could leave someone still wanting for approval? Well, I believe what the Bible teaches, namely that we are made in the image of God, and it is ultimately his approval for which we long. And we know, even if we don't know that we know, that all the resume building in the world won't impress him. If we show up on Judgment Day with a resume in our hands... It's going to get us precisely nothing. It doesn't matter how impressive it is, it will be laughable. Why? Because if the requirement <laughs> is that you reach the stars, then it doesn't matter if you're on the highest mountain or the deepest valley, you're not that much closer to touching the stars. Can you imagine if somebody's standing on the tip of Mount Everest boasting to the people down at base camp, look how much closer I am to touching the stars than you are. I mean, it's true, but, but a few thousand feet in the span of trillions of miles means nothing. The resume won't work. So neither of these solutions to the problem of righteousness is any solution at all. But there is a third solution, and this is the only solution that will satisfy the human heart, and it's this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ 
the son of Abraham. So, let's see what that means. Number two, the solution of righteousness. Okay. Now, what does it mean that Jesus came to be the son of Abraham? And, number two, how does that solve our problem of righteousness? Well, let me tell you the story of Abraham's life beginning in Genesis chapter 12. Starting in verse 1, it says this. Now, the Lord said to Abram, at this point in the story, he's Abram. His name changes later. But I'm going to refer to him as Abraham just for clarity's sake. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is the beginning of the narrative of Abraham. And we need to notice a few things in these couple of verses. Number one, in our first exposure to Abraham, we see that the relationship between Abraham and the Lord is one of promise. That's the first thing to see. Number two, what are the promises the Lord makes? Well, there are two. The Lord promises Abraham, number one, a land for his people, and number two, a people to populate the land, a people that will come from Abraham. And then number three, the third thing you need to notice is that the result of these promises is as follows. The blessing of God extending from the Ab family of Abraham to all the families of the earth. That's what he promises to Abraham. Now, how does that solve the problem of righteousness? Well, we find out in Genesis 15, if we keep going in the story. Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heavens, number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So the Lord comes to Abram, Abraham in order to remind him of the promise that he had made to his family and for a land. But Abraham is wavering. He's getting shaky of heart. How can I know your promise is true when I remain childless? And in response, the Lord says, you know it's true because I promised it. That's how you know. And here is the solution to the problem of righteousness in verse 6. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham is counted righteous, not because he worked for it, not because he stopped caring what everyone else thought and only listened to his own opinion, not because he had a great resume, but because he believed that God could fulfill his promises. Now, <laughs> Let's not rush past that, because in the scope of world religion, there is nothing like this. 
It's nothing less than astonishing what we see here. Abraham is reckoned righteous, which is to say he found approval in God's sight, that universal human churning and longing and desire. He found that not because he brought a sacrifice, not because he had a great resume, but because he believed that God could do something. He doesn't have a great resume. God chooses him, says, I will bless you. I'll make a great family out of you. I'll give you a land. And then in like the next couple of chapters, we find he's not that upright of a man. He doubts the promises. He's fearful. He's a liar. He puts his wife in danger to save his own skin. Like he's, this is not a great resume. But that's not how righteousness is reckoned. Abraham believed that God could do what he promised, and that belief God counted as righteousness. Now, let's go one step further. In order to solidify Abraham's shaky belief, watch what God does. Right after what we just read, Genesis 15, verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. And then skipping to verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these two pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Huh. Now, what in the world is going on here? Um, Well, the Lord is establishing a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. And a covenant in the ancient world is just like a legally binding agreement between two parties. But they don't, back then they didn't enter into agreements like we do today where you go into an office, a lawyer, and you sign papers and each party signs their thing. And the way that you know that the contract is binding is because both parties have signed their names. But in the ancient world, they signed a contract, so to speak, through a blood ritual, like the one we just witnessed. Abraham cut up some animals, and he lined them up opposite one another and created something like a, like a bloody aisle for them to walk through. And the point is that both parties entering the covenant would walk through that aisle of blood between the halves of the animals, and this was a way of saying the following. If I break this covenant... May I be cut into pieces like this animal. If you break this covenant, may you be cut into pieces like this animal. It's a very vivid and and rich way of entering into an agreement with one another. So anyone reading this, 
that I just read in Genesis 15, anyone in the ancient world reading this would know exactly what's about to happen. The Lord and Abram, Abraham are going to walk through the bloody aisle together and enter a covenant. But did you catch the altogether unexpected conclusion? Abraham prepares the animals, and then God puts him to sleep. He falls into a deep sleep, and then in the midst of that sleep, Abraham has a vision. God gives him this vision of a smoking fire pot floating, I guess, through the two halves, across the bloody aisle, through the halves of the animals, by itself. Now, the smoking fire pot was the symbol of God's presence. So don't miss this. A covenant is being sealed between two parties, but only one of those parties is actually signing on the dotted line. In fact, one of those parties is signing both copies. So, essentially, what the Lord is saying here is this. If I break my covenant promises to you, Abram, Abraham, may I be cut to pieces. But if you break your promises in this covenant, may I be cut to pieces. You see that? Oh, okay. Now, this is why righteousness is reckoned by belief. Because the Lord himself takes up full responsibility for the covenant which he makes Abraham his son. You are my son, Abraham, because I say so, not because you have done such and such. Now, after all of this, God gives to Abraham a sign of this covenant between himself and the Lord. And that covenant sign is circumcision. So if you look at Genesis 17, verse 10, it says this. This is my covenant, says the Lord, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So, Circumcision is a sign of the covenant promises of God. It was a sign that you are a member of God's covenant family. Now, just to be clear, the sign is not the reality, right? These are two different things. The sign is a symbol of the covenant. And we need to make this distinction because by the time we get to Jesus' era, um, People have confused the sign for the reality. Circumcision becomes something on people's resume. Um, do you remember when the Apostle Paul lists, lists his fleshly resume uh, in Philippians chapter 3? You know what the first thing on the list is? Circumcised on the eighth day. So people in that day assumed that if they bore this sign, they were safely members of God's covenant. But that's delusional. I mean, that's on par with a man whose wife has uh, left him, divorced him, moved to another state, gotten remarried, and the man says, yeah, but I'm still married. I got the ring. No. This is a sign of the marriage, not the marriage itself. All right. Now, all of that that I just said is going to be important in a couple of minutes, but let's just see how the story of Abraham ends. The Lord finally does give to Abraham and his wife Sarah a son. 
after many years of waiting. And his name was Isaac, which means son of laughter. And they named him this because Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 99 years old. So not only was the birth of this child miraculous, it was laughable. Sarah, Sarah says it. Everybody will hear about a 99-year-old woman nursing a child and they will laugh. That's why his name is Isaac. But finally, finally, God had kept his promise. From Isaac, a whole nation of sons and daughters would be born into the covenant of God. And finally, God had done what he promised to do. And yet, in Genesis 22, something very strange happens. The Lord shows up to Abraham and commands him to go to a mountain and to sacrifice Isaac. Which is to say, just to be plain, kill him on an altar. That is an extraordinarily strange turn of events. Abraham waited for the Lord to fulfill his promise to make a great nation out of him for 25 years. And then finally, in his old age, Isaac is miraculously born, and the family of God for generations has begun. All the promises of God have been working forward into this end. And then God says to Abraham, kill the boy. And so Abraham, who believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, brought Isaac up a mountain with a knife in his hand and some flint in his pocket. Abraham tied him up, raised the knife, was about to plunge it into his son's chest when, at the very last moment, an angel stopped him. And this is the account we have in Genesis 22, starting in verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on this boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, listen, lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns, by his horns, excuse me. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The Lord will provide. We do such strange things with this passage. Like we, we read it and we assume that it teaches us, you know, we all have an Isaac something that's very precious to us. And God is calling us to go sacrifice that thing to him, to prove our devotion to him. And nothing could be further than the meaning of this passage, that, for that from the meaning of this passage. The whole point here is that God is telling Abraham, you bringing sacrifices to me is not how this relationship works. I bring the sacrifices. And sure enough, Abraham looks behind him he sees a ram caught in a thicket by the horns. The Lord provides. So let me be clear. From beginning to end, Abraham's relationship with the Lord was one in which the Lord provided everything. God chose Abraham, made promises to bless Abraham, granted Abraham righteousness simply because Abraham believed that God would do what he said he would do 
God gave Abraham a son and showed him that he is not a God who requires Abraham's sacrifice, but he is a God who brings his own sacrifice. Now, in light of all that, hopefully you're starting to see what it means that Jesus Christ came as the son of Abraham. In fact, Jesus Christ is the true Abraham. Abraham was only the sign. Jesus Christ is the reality. In Jesus Christ, all the families of the earth are blessed. When God promised to Abraham all those years before that if Abraham and his family broke the covenant of God, that God himself would be torn to pieces, we see the fulfillment of that in the saving sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon his cross. And this further shows us that God brings his own sacrifice for the salvation of the people. He didn't need our sacrifice. He comes with his own. You see, all of us, by virtue of our flesh, believe somewhere that our standing with God, his approval of us, our righteousness is determined by how good our behavior is. We must sacrifice for him. But Jesus Christ and his sacrifice witness against such thinking. Abraham turned and saw that the Lord had provided for him a sacrifice with its head caught in a thicket. And we must also turn and find that the Lord has provided us a sacrifice with his head caught in the thorns as well. Jesus Christ is the Lord's sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. And how is it that we enter into the blessing of that sacrifice? Just like Abraham did. It has always been so. And the, explaining this was basically the entire thrust of the Apostle Paul's ministry. So listen to him talk about it in Romans chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise of Abraham, or excuse me, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Skipping to verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that, did not, that do not exist." The righteousness without which none of us will see the Lord comes to us by belief in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We are approved in God's sight not because we are good, but because he was good. And we believe that he has done it and that all is accomplished in his life and death and resurrection. And that our righteousness, that approval for which we long with every fiber of our being, rests not on our work but on the work of another. And that work is complete and it is marvelous in our eyes. But one more step to go. God gave Abraham circumcision as the sign of the covenant between him and the Lord. And as I mentioned, by Jesus' time, many Jews had confused this sign with the reality. I am circumcised, therefore I'm a member of God's covenant family. But Paul spends most of chapter 2 in his letter to the Romans proving that physical circumcision 
is of no value if you don't keep the entire law. If you break the law at any point, your circumcision is just a meaningless sign. So a better sign has been given to those of us who believe in Jesus Christ for our righteousness, namely, circumcision of the heart. Listen to him talk about it in Romans chapter 2. For no one, starting in verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So the sign of the new covenant is circumcision of the heart, and that is a strange way of putting it. <laughs> Let's, let's not dance around that one. That, what a strange way of saying, of, what is that? What does that mean? Well, it's just a further emphasis of righteousness by grace, righteousness by gift. To put it bluntly, if a man believed that circumcision of the flesh was a way to earn God's approval, then he could carry out that act. He may be deceived, but there's no doubt he could perform the act. But who could circumcise their own heart? They can't. Only the Lord can do this. It is an act that is completely out of our hands. If we are to live under the covenant of God's blessing, if we are to live as members of God's family, if we are to live as those who possess the righteousness of God by grace, it will only be for one reason, and that is this. The Lord provides. you notice <laughs> did you notice the last thing he said in that little passage i just read it says he says something that's just downright astonishing for those who submit themselves to the riches of god's kindness to those who are circumcised of heart and believe that their righteousness is reckoned by faith in christ here's what paul says in romans 2 29 the last sentence he says his praise is not from man, but from God. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, don't miss this. Who is being praised here? It's not God. It says his praise. Whose praise? The person who is reckoned righteous by faith. His praise is not from man, but from God. So, that's the person who's receiving the praise. Who is doing the praising? Well, there's two options, man, God. And Paul says that the praise of the one reckoned righteous by belief does not come from man, but from God. If you believe in the saving death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, hear this, the Lord praises you. He approves of you. You take up space in his attention and his delight. Isn't that astonishing? How is that possible? I've done nothing deserving of praise in his sight, and yet God turns his attention to me and praises me. His praise is from God. In that moment when I realize that, all the longing that I've had in this world for approval, for righteousness, satisfied. No one 
if you know me, you know what's coming now. No one has ever said this better than C.S. Lewis in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. I, I can't count how many times I've given you this passage, but it is a strong bridge that can handle many crossings. He says this. It is written. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible, and only possible by the work of Christ. That's some of us. That any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God, to please God to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. This is what it means that Jesus Christ came to us as the promised son of Abraham. So let us rejoice this advent that in Christ's coming, he provided us the righteousness, the approval that we've been searching for all our lives. In him, all shall be well, because Jesus Christ is the son of Abraham. Now, we come to this table, and the name of this table is The Lord Provides. It's a sign of the grace. It's a sign of the faith. It's a sign of your inclusion in his family. And we must be very careful not to mistake the sign for the reality. Participating in this meal is not meritorious. Participating in this meal does not earn us anything. Participating in this meal is not a magic trick that somehow gets us into God's kingdom. This meal is a sign that we have been circumcised in heart and that we throw ourselves without reservation on the mercies of God. This is a meal for those who have been reckoned righteous, not because their resume is marvelous. This is a meal for those who have been reckoned righteous because you believe in the atoning death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins and that one day he shall return to bring you into his everlasting kingdom. So, for those of you who believe that, this is your meal and I invite you to come and taste the approval and the praise of God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, <clears throat> We have nothing that we can offer you in return for such magnanimous gifts. Who are we that you should handle us with such kindness? Who are we that you should pour out your grace and your everlasting love upon us? We are 
in no way lovely. But we confess that if we are lovely, it's because you have loved us. If we are good, it's because you have made us that way. If we are your sons and daughters, it's because you have adopted us. And so we praise you for your kindness. We praise you for your mercy. We pray that you will come to us by your spirit as we partake of the meal of our Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, this is your meal. You are most welcome. So, come and welcome to Jesus Christ.